Well, it's good to be able to greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and thank you for choosing to worship with us this morning, and thank you, David, and choir, and instruments, and our congregation, of course, for beautiful music. But now I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been studying this book for a number of weeks now, and this uh, amounts to our summer series, having taken a break from the book of Acts. And today we begin chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. I'd like to begin reading in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 2, and we'll stop somewhere around verse 11. Now, if you've been looking in your bulletin, it says verse 26. Well, the rest of it is still in the oven. Uh, Sometimes it's difficult to decide how much uh, to study, and sometimes it's better to go with a bigger chunk. Sometimes it's better to go with a smaller one. But if there's a few unforgivable faux pas, church ministry, it's biting off more than you can chew and keeping your people too long, especially on Father's Day, right? Now that I've cursed myself uh, in hopes that we'll get out early, let's look at the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes chapter 2. This is the preacher speaking in the first person. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter. It is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart is still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. And planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil." Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Ask for his blessing on understanding and obeying. Father in heaven, we thank you again for this gathering and for the prospect of, of your meeting us here to open to us the things we've just read and to help us obey what it implies. We thank you for the truth we're able to sing. We're thankful for a copy of your word. And Lord, would you now be our teacher? May we be your students. We ask this in your name. Amen. So the preacher is talking to himself again. We've, we've looked at this twice now. This is the third week. And chapter 2 opens with, I said in my heart. So this is another heart to heart. And much of the transitions begin with something along those lines. Either I considered or I said to myself or I considered in my heart. This whole thing is about him searching under the sun for the answer to life's meaning. He's been thinking... And not about the grace and beauty of God. We touched on that last week. 
There's a difference between what's above the sun and what's under the sun. And for what we're talking about today, this is all under the sun. These are earthly things, earthly pleasures to be specific. It was wisdom. And the opposite of uh, wisdom and morality, which would be foolishness. That's what we studied in the weeks previous. But today... Look at it again. Come now, I will test you with pleasure. So who's being tested? Well, this is the preacher, or Solomon, as is commonly believed. He's testing himself. He says to himself, enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. A couple of things in that first verse to kind of get us started. The word test, I will test you with pleasure, tells us that what follows, at least down to verse 11, and it continues in the next paragraphs is an experiment. He's experimenting. We don't know his age at this moment, but as he recalls and recollects, that's from a vantage point of of being older and more experienced. But this is an experiment, a deliberate attempt to learn from personal experience. And that's important. You you can have all the book knowledge you have uh, at your disposal, but if you don't know what to do with it through experience, it's not of much worth. And then there's the word pleasure. I will test you with pleasure. And the word pleasure tells us what he's looking to experience. This again, how else, what, what would you describe it as? The good life? Uh, as far as what we just read, all those categories? He's trying to live it up. You could think Epicurus. You could think Hemingway. I mean, you just fill out the list of people who sought after having a good time, and that being the key to unlock the meaning to life. But what we need to remind ourselves of, and this this will serve us well into the following paragraphs, this is still an argument from the greatest to the least, or the greater to the lesser. If Solomon, who has access to everything anybody could ever want, cannot be happy with all that he has, then it's tough for the rest of us. We don't have the capacity to experiment on this grand of a scale. This man is unprecedented in his uh, exploits. That'd be a good way to describe it, wouldn't you say? So let me look at, uh, draw your attention to something else. If we're, if we're still looking at verse 1 and then at verse 2, another word that gets used in every single verse in this passage In the first eight verses, it's actually the first word. It's the word I. And that's not where it stops. You'd probably think it a trifle unnecessary, but Solomon will use me, myself, or I almost 40 times by the end of chapter 2. You ever get sick of hearing that when somebody's talking? You sit down and have lunch with somebody and... uh, 98% of the conversation is what you're listening to. It's on and on and on and on and on. And this isn't a one-upper. He doesn't have to do that. It's not like it's give and take and, oh, well, let me tell you what I did. He's he's alone in this. No one can stand toe-to-toe with this man. It's totally me, myself, and I. And it's quite a dramatic story. This experiment is clearly self-centered as it is self-indulgent. And you could say uh, his chief end is to glorify himself. You know, the catechism's first entry. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever? Well, for the time span of this experiment, Solomon is to glorify himself and enjoy himself for the space of the breath that he says life is just a breath, the merest of breaths. It doesn't mean anything. It's all vanity. It's here and it's gone. So notice that before he mentions any of the details that we read, he gives us his results up front. Like some of these uh, academic journals, they'll tell you in the top paragraph what they're doing and then what they found. And then they'll go on for just page after page to explain how they got from A to B. Well, he gives us B right behind A This new quest has failed as miserably as his last. Pleasure had no more lasting gain than wisdom. And just so no one ever says, well, how do we know that he gave hedonism a fair shake? 
I mean, he's Solomon, he can talk all he wants to, but how do we really know he overturned every rock looking for a good time? Well, he spends the next seven verses listing this quite unprecedented list, again, of of his exploits. So let's start where he started. He starts with comedy. The word laughter is what we see right there in our, our, our scriptures. Um, I don't know if you've ever... Again, this is a thinking book. How often do you sit down and think about something like laughter or comedy? I don't know if you've ever thought through it. You probably enjoy it. Most people do enjoy laughing. A lot of people hide behind laughter. Some people hide their insecurities that way. Uh, if they get in a tight spot, they'll tell a joke. Everybody's laughing. The heat is, is off. Some people use laughter as power. You'd be surprised how you can control an entire room if you can have everyone in that room laughing at someone other than you and at their expense. Uh, Sometimes this is called perhaps bullying. Um, What's funny here is the preacher dismisses this category as quickly as he raises it. He says it's mad and of what use is it? And we're pretty sure that madness is used here to indicate moral perversity rather than mental breakdown. He's not saying that people who laugh have lost their minds. They're crazy. They're mad. He's probably using that as as a way that laughter inevitably gets in the ditch. That's probably what he's saying. There is a kind of joyful laughter. Who was it that said... Laughter is good like a medicine. Same guy. So again, when he goes nuts on this, everything is meaningless, we kind of flip back over to Proverbs and realize that he's not saying it doesn't mean anything. He's just meaning it's all short. It's, it's short-winded. It doesn't add up to much. It can't be stored or piled up. You put your name on this earth Everyone will always remember you for your jokes? He says, no, not at all. Most good belly laughs. That's, that's the way you describe a really good laugh, right? A belly laugh. You have to hold your belly because it hurts. Or you ever go spend a, a, a Saturday or something with an old friend, perhaps, and your jaw just hurts when you get home after dinner because you've laughed all day long? There is such a thing as as joyful laughter, and it's good stuff. I love it. Um, I have a ball with taking something that's missed by everyone, bring it out just for a moment, and then put it back, just to laugh at it. People who take themselves more seriously than they ought to is probably one of the funniest things to me on this planet. I don't know why. Maybe that's just a life of... uh, Ordained smart aleck. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> See, you're laughing. This one took a little longer. Sometimes we get there quicker, don't we? What's going on here is probably not the good belly laugh. Because in my experience, most of those happen by accident. They come out of nowhere. It usually has to do with something... That along the lines of our own weakness. We're laughing at ourselves, right? And you don't plan it. That's totally different than other forms. Even there's certain movies you might watch where you know the joke is coming, but it's still always funny. None of that, though, especially the the organic type of laughter. How would you go about testing that? When do you say, I will now test laughter? Well, you got to wait for something funny to happen. You keep your notebook with you to write down what you learned. It probably ruins the moment of it. I'm thinking, and this is conjecture. This is not said. I haven't found too many commentaries that, that even would agree. But I think this might be like our equivalent of professional comic acts. Like the stand-up stuff. Which, I've never been to a, a comedy club. I don't, I, probably because most of them, uh, you'd have to wear your full-blown hazmat suit as a Christian to get through it. Uh, that might have something to do. But I've just always thought, 
You're going to plan your laughing? Now we're going to pay money, we're going to sit down, and we're going to laugh. What if he's not funny? That might be the funniest part of it, is if the guy wasn't funny. And he has to leave. But I don't know. I've never been to any of these. But how many of you would agree that it would be safe or not safe in our homes behind our televisions to click through the channels there on your couch with your family and your kids and stop and see how it goes? Probably not. They inevitably go down the same road, don't they? Because it's as if the world's forgotten that simple stuff's funny. It's only that stuff that can get a laugh. And you have to check your conscience at the door to even get through it. Maybe that's what Solomon said. It didn't help me much. Um, The preacher found laughter to be a useless pleasure. We kind of got to leave it there because he doesn't give us any details. Again, it's conjecture. But the next, next test... Somebody may say, I've waited all my life to hear something like this in church. The next test is alcohol, which is another popular way for folks to seek enjoyment in life, wouldn't you say? Think about it. Just as far as a scope in American culture, could ticket sales and T-shirts drive the engine of our sports arenas, stadiums, I don't think so. I think when they don't get to game six or seven, it, it, it's a bad deal. They're expecting more out of this and not from the tickets. <laughs> Where my boys play roller hockey. It doesn't take a rocket science or Captain Obvious to walk in there and figure out how they make ends meet. I, I, I don't... If you've been there, you, you know... It's like, well, well, good grief. Does this help the experience watching your kids bungle around out there <laughs> to, do it, to make sure you get lubricated first? I don't know. It's that dug in to our culture. The preacher looked to cheer his body with wine. That's what he said. Many people do, either for fun or to escape their troubles. But here's what's interesting. Because Solomon includes the phrase, I want you to look at it. My heart still guided me with wisdom. While he was experimenting by cheering his body with wine. Does this mean that the guardrails he describes in uh, Proverbs 20 verse 1 were firmly in place through his experimentation? Say, what does that say? Again, Solomon, wine is a mocker and strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. This is kind of a bit of a contradiction if this guy throws caution to the wind after he said something like that. Maybe he said this after his experimentation. We don't know. We wish he would have told us. So was he an alcoholic or a connoisseur? Whether his experiment was marked by sophistication or inebriation, the man was looking for pleasure... And notice how he ends that discussion while he still had breath. I'm looking to find what's best to do for men under the sun with the little bit of time we have left. Maybe this will help me with the rest of it. Uh, Growing up in in a Christian home, being the son of a preacher man... It's kind of interesting to sit as a spectator in the world that we all live in. And there's church folks and then there's not church folks. But this was one of those things that you'd hear about. And some think it's the devil and others think it's, uh, you know, the the best thing in the world. I usually would just kind of listen and watch. I always thought that, uh, I remember when I was young enough that cigarette commercials were banned from television. Because you can't have it. Cool-looking camel talk kids into smoking, right? But the beer commercials, they just go on and on. And if you ever noticed or just paid attention to what you're looking at, y'all have TVs, you see these things. Um, It's either the people in those ads are depicted as being really cool or they're ordinary people doing really cool things. You know, to go way back. Uh, Head for the Rockies. You got this big pile of 
beautiful horses, and these guys are really good-looking Western stuff, not the cheesy stuff. These are real guys. Or some deep ocean exploration with a big boat or some four-by-four adventure on top of this mountain. You know that they probably airlifted those vehicles up there on that plateau. (laughs) Or some beautiful beach where there's nothing going on. All of that is designed to convince the viewer that you're missing something. Life is getting away from you. There's really cool stuff to do. And our product will help you with that. The sad thing is, they know, and we all know, that it's basically there just to numb you from the fact that you're never going to do any of that stuff. And you're never going to be as cool as those people look because that's not how life works. If you're like Solomon, just sit around and see what that does. It's sometimes the opposite of that whole thing. Here's the point. Greater to the lesser. Solomon had all that stuff. He had the four by fours and the big boats and all the horses and the beach. He had the mountains on one end and the beach on the other. Kind of like North Carolina, huh? He was as cool as anyone's ever been cool just by virtue of all the stuff that he had. Sometimes you don't have cool naturally. You've got a bunch of stuff. People call you cool when you're not. And it didn't make him happy. He says, I experimented, but it didn't help. It didn't fix it. So he leaves it almost morally neutral here. He doesn't tell us that it's God's gift. He doesn't tell us that it's a train wreck. He says that stuff elsewhere, but he doesn't say it here in Ecclesiastes. So what do we make of it? Well, let's keep moving. We'll pick up the pace and look at the rest of the list. So Solomon becomes an architect. Then Solomon becomes a builder. Then Solomon becomes a developer. He spent more than a decade building his own palace, we're told elsewhere. Then he became a gardener. Then he became a venerone. Anybody know what a venerone is? It has to do with a vineyard, but it has a G in it to make you trip. You'd think it would have be spelled like vineyard with an er on the end of it or something. A vineyarder. It's a venerone. It even sounds prestigious. Then he was a park ranger and then an irrigation specialist with pools that would water whole forests. Then we read that he gathered for himself, says that he bought and paid for an abundance of slaves. Male slaves, female slaves, little children slaves born to slave families that he owned. He gathered animals, not by pairs or groups, but by herds and by flocks. More than anyone's ever had, it says. I haven't bought that many animals. Most of them have been fish to put in a tank and watch. But I never had like a school of fish. I've never had a flock of fowl or a herd of any kind of animal. Just wait, we'll read from First Kings how many he had. It goes on, silver and gold, we kind of expect that. And then a bunch of unnamed stuff described as the treasure of kings and provinces. I mean, if we've got to use descriptors like, oh, this is just king stuff, or the best of this province over here. He doesn't even know where to put it all. And then singers, male and female singers. Now, it's at this point, if, if you're really thinking through here, what do you do with all this? And if he's really experimenting about the good life, does he do it all like in a white lab coat? with his little clipboard, with his glasses hanging down his nose, you know, watching and writing stuff down? Or is he like headlong into this, like some type of mafia don, with everybody waiting on him? I don't know. But, I mean, if you're guessing or thinking, imagining your way through it, I don't know that that from that just described, or uh, Club Shlomo, hottest nightclub in Jerusalem, go there every night, he's got everything. Right? Got the music. Think of that. Music. He doesn't have a Victrola, much less an iPod or speakers. If he wants music, how does it get done? 
they actually perform it at parties in front of all these people with the slaves to make sure everybody's happy. It almost sounds like what we were reading about in the book of Esther with Ahasuerus and the, the, the length and breadth and depth of all of his wealth. And then there's his women. And thankfully, he, he doesn't say much about that. Uh, and just to say in passing, in case anyone under the sun should ever wonder if they're missing out in that regard. As far as... Uh, uh, not really thinking this is what it was cracked up to be. Maybe I should explore my options. Solomon had 1,000 options. Again, the argument from the greater to the lesser. You'd have to try 1,001 to be able to say that you knew more than he did. And at the end, he said, there's nothing there. And what's so pitiful about it? There's certain things that exclude you from other experiences under the sun. There's one thing Solomon would never know, even if he only knew about it briefly. He would never know what it was like to have one woman. Right? This is a weird story. And if we don't have the full picture in our heads, the scope of this man's achievement, if you want to call it that, is represented in the fact that he mentions each category in the plural. Not a house, but houses. Not a garden, but gardens. Vineyards, parks, trees, pools, gold, silver, treasure, slaves, singers, and concubines. And this is just one man's possessions. In 1 Kings 4, we are told Solomon's provision for one day, this is just what it took to keep his private residence running, his provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, and that, that's, that's C-O-R-S, not, you know, the, when the Rockies are blue, it's cold as whatever, not that course. Back to those dumb commercials, by the way. And then, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, that's Wagyu beef probably, a hundred sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. Maybe he's having foie gras, right? He's fattening up them geese to eat their livers. This is staggering, isn't it? It's, what it's meant to be. You'd look at this and just go, wow. But then I started reading the commentaries, making an argument that it might be that enough time has elapsed that many of us could outdo Solomon in certain categories. I mean, there's a lot of stuff he didn't have. None of them had. You could make your list maybe over lunch. You know, what do we have that Solomon didn't that he might think was cool? Um, I'd have to go with air conditioning to start with. I mean, what good is it to have all the stuff if everybody stinks? All right? How can you enjoy yourself if you just... Uh, Sweaty, clammy mess. That would be good. And then he, he never knew what a Slurpee from Circle K tasted like because they didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have modern medicine. A toothache could just ruin your life for as long as it took to rot and fall out. Uh, so many things that we take for granted. He didn't have Amazon. Even Solomon can't click buy now and have it tomorrow. Or if you got the really good subscription, have it in three to four hours. And anything you want. Money was no option with him. What if he just said, called up Bezos himself and said, I'll take one of everything. If anybody could pull it off, it'd probably be him. What do you do with it? And what did he say? He wasn't satisfied. I guess the better question to ask, trying to transition from wasness where he was to isness where we are are we satisfied we've got amazon refrigeration and air condition this is probably one of those statements that if we're really pressed we'd probably say 
no comment. Talk to me later. I've got more stuff than I can keep track of. I got a lot of toys and I got a lot of problems. But I don't know that I'm happy. Uh, this fellow named Greg Easterbrook, he wrote the book, the, pa- the Progress Paradox, How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. He says, we have more of almost everything except happiness. And he goes on to describe that maybe this helps explain why the 20th century is an age of anxiety. When more people struggle with more mental illness than ever before. Let's look at it one more time. Verse 11. In fact, let's just look at 10 and 11. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. And, verse 11, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. That word considered there, where he says, then I considered, that literally means to face. It means to look something in the eye, straight in the eye. So Solomon was facing up to reality. He wanted us to know that what he found wasn't pretty. He'd worked hard to enjoy himself, had absolutely nothing to show for it. Now he did say, and we'll talk about this later, that he enjoyed the work of it while he was working it. Um, there's a lot of things that we do in life that the struggle of it all or the hard work involved, even raising our children, is fun while it lasts. And then they leave the home and they're gone and we miss them. That's just one example. He doesn't say that you can't enjoy yourself in your work. He just says that when it's all said and done, you have nothing to show for all the work. And that the pleasure was momentary and passing. You can't bottle the pleasure and say, this is just too much fun right now. I'm going to put some of it in a jar and when I'm having a bad day, I'll get it out and enjoy some. That doesn't work. So here's a question. Solomon wasn't full. He was empty and he'd done it all. Here's the question I want you to think of. You take this home. Write it down if you want to. If we could find lasting satisfaction in earthly pleasure under the sun, would we ever need a God in heaven? If your kids weren't dependent on you, you suppose they'd leave your home earlier? I mean, think of it. If if this world is, is cursed because of sin and our relationship to God is broken we need Jesus to save us to repair all that and give us meaning in life if really we had everything we ever wanted then how would we ever know him I mean after sin and Adam and Eve's fall into sin what was the business of that cherubim with the flaming sword to throw them out of the garden and to make sure they never come back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and get stuck in that situation forever well because there's more to come but if he just let them have the garden exactly the way it was that's pretty much the last he'll see of them isn't it I mean really how much do we need the Lord when on a good day Why was it said, give me neither poverty nor riches? I'm I'm better, I'm of more use to the Lord when I'm not really rich or I'm not really struggling. Somewhere in the middle. Because both of them are quite a distraction. And then what we'll get to later in this book is, there's something worse than having none of your dreams ever come true. Solomon's going to tell you what's worse is having all of them come true. Because there's something that just messes up our understanding of the way things really are. So that's the question. Here's what I invite you to consider. In order for Jesus to accomplish the saving work for which he came to earth, sent by his Father in heaven, he could not have lived to please himself. 
He did not live, live, live to please himself. He lived to please his Father. We studied John, and it's at every turn that he did the work of his Father, to, to please his Father. He'd never pleased himself. People came and said, hey, you're where it's at. I want to come too. You need to understand, foxes have holes in the ground. Birds have nests in trees. I have nothing. You'll have nothing either. Nothing to see here. He died without anything. So, it is said in Scripture that Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, except he didn't sin. So I think it's safe to assume, and probably a really good point in a study of Ecclesiastes, that everything Solomon pursued for gain, Jesus rejected wholesale and resisted in perfection. There, 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 there was temptation there, of course. The devil came to make, hey, I'll give you all these cities. I'll give you all this stuff, just a moment's glory of yours to me. That's all I want. So, yes, he was tempted, but he succeeded. Where Solomon, behind his study campaign, looks as if he floundered. Everything Solomon pursued, Jesus resisted in order to be the Savior that every dissatisfied sinner needs. When you're at your bottom and you're old enough to know that it's true, you can't pile up anything here. And you may do a grand job of it until a certain point, and that certain point is your death where you have to let go of it all, all of it. You take none of it with you. Somewhere near that point, or maybe you get to that realization earlier, and you've got two options. Would you rather have Solomon as your life coach, or would you rather have Jesus who died for you and resisted all of it? So you can keep on living the same rat race? No, so we can go to heaven on the other side of the sun where it's exactly the way God intended before everything got messed up in the Garden of Eden. So when we turn to Jesus, the strangest thing happens. Put on your thinking cap. I hope this sticks. The very pleasures that failed to satisfy Solomon, the very pleasures that failed to satisfy us, when we're with Jesus, then begin to help us find even greater joy in the goodness of God. If you can... Train your brain and your heart not to look at what's here available to us on this planet as something that's meant to satisfy us because our satisfaction is only found in our Creator and a relationship with Him. Then all the stuff under the sun actually turns into something that when enjoyed only points your gaze back to the one who gave it to you. This is a certain type of implication from Scripture that has the power to change your thinking. And if it can change your thinking, it can change your life. I mean, really, turn on your television and everything is downloaded to you from a trillions of dollars worth of ads to make you feel as if you've got to have more. It's not true. But that's the way the world turns, doesn't it? The bumper sticker, he who has the most toys when he dies, wins. I haven't seen that bumper sticker. I like the other one. He who dies with the most toys is still dead. (laughs) We should make those available and then have the copyright, Ecclesiastes, down at the bottom. These things are things that God meant for good, meant for enjoyment, and for His children. Now, of course, the Bible has a lot to say about the pleasures of sin. Remember uh, in Hebrews, talking about Moses who refused to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. God had use for him, and he was able to, to let Egypt stay in Egypt, right? So discount all that. There's plenty of stuff in the Scriptures that say that it's off limits. It, it, it's 
a category of the sin in this world that's, that's just off, off limits. But there's these other things that seem to be moral neutral, but depending on where we are and what we do with them, that can be our end. What does it say in the Bible? That money is all, is all evil or the root of money is all evil? Or the desire for money is the root of all evil? There's nothing wrong with money. It's just if you make money your God, you've replaced the real one. And there's going to be a problem that'll be fixed when you're gone because you'll leave it to somebody else. That's the next chapter that we look at. Next paragraph, rather. With the idea of this list and all this stuff that Solomon did and whether or not they're useful, their gifts, or their vices, in the reading through the commentaries this week, I found something to be very helpful from a book I'd read when I was a kid. Many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis and uh, his nonfiction and his brilliant way of taking complex theological material and putting it where anybody can understand it. This man was an atheist and then he became a reluctant convert. And then he just wrote us a lot of very helpful things. Not everything is perfect. It, it's the mind of a man. But in Prince Caspian, which is in his Chronicles of Narnia, toward the end, when Aslan, who is the Christ figure in this allegory, returns to restore old Narnia, they go from a state where everything's messed up to where Aslan systematically puts everything back online as it was created to be. And there's a feast and a party, a jubilation when, when all the old things are past and everything's made new. And it's just fascinating the way he describes each of these things and how they just seem to change in metamorphosis. What he's talking about is, is the redemption of the created order. But the characters in there, you know, there's two boys and two girls, and it's Susan and Lucy who are talking to one another about things going on in this basically worldwide party going on. And there's this kid. His name is Bacchus. And he's only wearing a fawn skin. So it's kind of like a loincloth of sorts with this laurel wreath around his head. But he's described as wild. And the kids don't know what to do with him. And he's got a, a lot of other friends. And they're, they're girls. Now an adult reading this book might know that name. It goes back to Greek mythology. It's actually the god of wine and all sorts of other things. And don't read of Bacchus from Greek mythology. He's a bad dude. It's crazy. He'll get you in trouble. Ruin your life. But Lewis puts him in the Narnia story. Children to read. It just seems to be a crazy kid. The two brothers say, I don't think, I think this kid would do anything. Anything. And then there's this line where he's at this party and there's dancing and there's feasting. All the stuff that we read, but in the company of Aslan. And it's Susan that says to Lucy, I don't think I would have been comfortable meeting them if we weren't with Aslan. Now, to a child, you're just reading along, but an adult reading that later? That's it, isn't it? This world has a lot to offer that in its own regard is something that God put here. But you've got the devil as well with his agenda. And would it not make sense from Scripture that the same thing could be either our joy or our grief? And isn't it when we go looking for pleasure, but we leave God behind, that we find ourselves in some of the biggest messes we've ever been through? It's true. And that's why Solomon is winding up broke at every turn, because his gaze is clearly only under the sun. 
Aslan's not there. And it doesn't look like God is either. Let's reread through that list just briefly. This is how we close. What Lewis is saying is pleasure is only safe when God is there. So we feel God's pleasure when we receive laughter as a gift from Him, not mocking others in a vulgar way, but laughing at ourselves or our limitations. We feel God's pleasure when we receive fermented drink as a gift from God. Not unlawfully, it clearly says we're not to be drunk. Foolishly, by drinking to excess, making a mockery of ourselves and shaming our testimony. We feel God's pleasure when we build good homes and good buildings, when we build them for God's glory and the good of other people, not to heap up recognition for ourselves. We feel God's pleasure when we see in God's created world the fingerprints of His creative genius designed to point us back to Him. When we hear music that fascinates the mind and moves our emotions to His worship. Have you ever sat through, say, uh, and this is an illustration that popped in my mind from a few weeks ago. I had sent a text to another pastor in this town because we'd been talking about whether or not the hurricanes can go all the way to the cup. So I felt it led to tell him, I'm going to be at game seven where we lost. And he said, darn, I'm going to the symphony. And I said, man, I wish I could trade you a period for a movement. Because I like a symphony too, right? But could you think of two things more different? The symphony or guys in pads hitting each other constantly, sometimes with their fists, to see who can get the biscuit in the basket. There are things in this world that aren't necessarily Christian, including music, that can so move the emotions to say, only God could make this. And common grace is oozing out of his lost children and only pointing back to him for those who know how this world works under the sun. Or when we gather around a good meal with those God has put in our lives and we're fed both physically and spiritually and fed well. Or we feel God's pleasure in physical union with the one God gave us in marriage where intimacy is given rather than taken for ourselves and where it is shared exclusively as God designed and made clear in His Word. Once we learn that the pleasures of this life under the sun are not meant to be piled up by ourselves as gain but received as gifts from a loving God, we will find satisfaction in our Lord. And then... All his gifts become reminders that there has to be more. But on the other side. That's the point of this book. We ruin its ending every week. He's going to tell us the same thing. If this is all there is, it doesn't make sense. It only makes sense if there's something more. And leave it to God to give us pleasure that can hurt us or draw us closer to Him, depending on what we do with it. We're going to stand in a minute. We're going to sing, Be Thou My Vision. But I wanted to show you something here before we sing it. And then while we sing it, I'm hoping it'll mean more. I'm thinking that only pastor's kids are not the only ones that can sing through a whole hymn and not pay attention to a single word. Same as you don't pay attention to a single stoplight on your way home from work sometimes, and you get home and wonder, how did I do that and survive? We have autopilot, right? Well, this is autopilot prevention, like the little buzzer on some of the autopilot cars to say, put your hands on the wheel. This is to help us put our hands on the wheel of Be Thou My Vision. O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that Thou art, Thou my best thought, By day or by night, walking or sleeping, thy presence my 
light. Hang on to that for a second. And then be thou my wisdom. And then riches I heed not, nor vain empty praise. Thou my inheritance. You don't get your inheritance quick unless you're the prodigal son. You've got to wait on that. We haven't got our inheritance. Now and always, thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. But that business of thy presence is my light. You remember the passages in the book of Revelation that talk about how in the new heaven and the new earth there's no sun and there's no moon? There actually aren't any verses that say that. Now, we, we want to think that they say that. What it actually says is we won't need the sun and the moon. And it might not be there either. If we don't need it, maybe the Lord gets rid of it. But it might just mean that something replaces it, which is precisely what the verse says. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. There's coming a day when this is over where that thing that Solomon used as the instrument to calibrate everything in life under the sun will be made absolutely and totally defunct. It'll be our Lord Jesus that is our Son. And in that place, under the sun means under our Savior. Everything will make sense. He's the one who made it. And it, it's not cursed anymore. He died to break that and do away with it. But I've never seen that before until thinking through this, seeing that David had chosen this hymn to be the end. Thy presence is my light. Do you think that living under the sun, that big ball of hot gas that our universe revolves around, could be looked at differently if we would mean what we sing? Thy presence is my light. It governs my choices, my pleasures, my pain, my purpose. My everything. I think it can. So let's pray. Then we'll sing. And then I'll be back up here to turn us loose. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, for what it means. Lord, this stuff is so big. It's hard to think it through in one sitting. So Lord, we ask, and I hope everyone in this room will do the same. Lord, put this stuff in our brain where it won't go away. Lord, bring Yourself to our mind at every beautiful thing we see. Lord, bring Yourself to mind at everything that hurts and we wish weren't there. And Lord, may we make sense of this place because of You. Not aimlessly wandering around trying to make sense of this world by the stuff that You gave us to point us back to You. Thank you for time in church. Thank you for each other. Thank you for song. Thank you for time. I ask all this in your precious name. Amen.